Welcome to the Stakeholders Podcast, the show where we try to answer the question, what's at stake? We dive into how an organization's pursuit of their objectives affect or are affected by the people. Our guests come from the private industry, government, education, and more to discuss how they manage with their stakeholders in mind to achieve long-term success. Today, we're joined by Karen Flavel, the founder of Cassaba, an award-winning web producer, author, speaker, and strategist, the co-founder of a nonprofit to help regional communities share fire warning information, and the co-founder of one of Melbourne's first ISPs. Karen, I want to thank you very much for being here today with us. Can you tell us a little bit more about yourself and what you do? Sure, thanks. It's great to be here with you. Um, So I'm from Melbourne originally, and now I live in Sausalito, California, which is just north of San Francisco. Um, What brought me here is that I I got active on the internet very early days. Uh, I think we we got our first internet connection in 1994. Um, And at that time, I'd just returned from traveling around Australia and writing a guidebook to national parks. So um, I studied, my, my graduate degree was in media, and uh, so I, I went and wrote a book, and, um, and that became a bestseller. Um, and at the time, I was then figuring out, okay, what, what am I going to do next? And I was sort of pretty keen on doing video series. And then someone said, hey, what about CD-ROMs, you know, and, and the whole sort of idea of a nonlinear pathway through information was sort of um, dawned on me at that point. And, um, but of course, just as I was looking at CD-ROMs, along came the internet. So that was 1994. And I think at that time, I, I really saw a fantastic opportunity for media to be far more decentralized. And uh, instead of it being a really top-down system of, um, of, of, you know, dominant brands just uh, feeding us what they want us to hear. So I was very invigorated by the internet back at that time. So been heavily involved with using the internet. But during that time, I always bounced out and did something in real life. So I used to set up warehouses, spaces and and do multi-arts events. And the first Melbourne Stencil Festival was in my warehouse and really um, also got involved with permaculture and and growing food and so catering and you know so I, I just love getting out and doing something physically and uh, so yeah I, I got came over to the states because um, I really see you know what happens here around the Bay Area is a very uh, foundational um, space it's very it's like a petri dish of incredible forces that make things happen that reverberate around the world so I knew I needed to be here and and that's what what led me to to be here in San Francisco man that is a really exciting background like I wish I could have just traveled around Australia for a couple months and just wrote a book (laughs) well it was a year (laughs) a full year wow even better (laughs) yeah and now how did all of that kind of come together to let you create cassava yeah well, um, when I lived in Melbourne, I used to co-create a nine-day camping trip with friends. It was called Deepen Community. Uh, so we did that for many years, and it was just such an incredible experience, especially, you know, there was 150 of us, so it wasn't just a, a few friends um, popping up their tents. It was kind of like a mini festival. Um, and the experience was so positive for me and, and so much love was shared and and such great experiences in nature that um, I, I declared, we need a tiny homeland, you know, we need to get tiny home and put them together and, and be able to do what we do when we, we come together like this. So so a group of friends and I tried to buy some property 
Um, but it never came, came together. And I realized, wow, that's actually a common story for many people who are trying to buy land with friends. There's a few um, particular things that tie into the challenges of it. Um, the first is that if you're already out there doing your great work in the world, then taking on basically another full-time job to be able to negotiate and manage the whole process of buying land and getting it set up um, is just too much of a reach. Um, secondly, people's life moves in different cycles. So at one point, you know, someone's like ready to put the deposit down, ready to make it happen. And then they might get pregnant or they might decide to get do an artist in residence in another part of the world. Um, so it's quite hard for, to get that sort of, um, you know, synergy of things happening at the exact right time. And then thirdly, it's just pretty hard negotiating with friends around money, especially large transactions like that. I think we're pretty used to doing things in a very individualistic way. And um, we didn't really have the skill set to negotiate with, with each other. So anyway, we're still friends, of course. Um, and then I headed off and became a digital nomad. So uh, <laughs> lived in Vietnam for a year and a half before coming here to the States. Um, so, and, and then what I realized was, wow, there's all of these people living this digital nomadic life and what they really need is, is places where they can come back to for a few months in their own country so that they can really connect with friends. So for example, for me, I want to be able to go back to the Melbourne community for three months and have my own space there, something I can buy and own. And then when I'm not there, have it rented out for me. So it's a revenue source. So I wanted to combine those things, so making that place in nature for like-minded people to be together. And then it's supported by the people that are, are coming to, you know, rent there for shorter periods or even for the weekend workshops and uh, healing retreats, that sort of thing. The digital nomad has really grown into being such a real industry almost. I remember I was watching um, a video about, wild we wander and this guy basically creating a booklet on how to live as a digital nomad have you heard of him i haven't heard that but i i must admit i was a fan of the tim ferris four-hour work week and <laughs> and i think a lot of people were inspired by that kind of notion of of really working wherever wherever you want and then i was listening to a tropical mba podcast and they mentioned saigon and that's what led me to be in Saigon, Vietnam. And I, I bet Vietnam's beautiful. I've seen some videos and images, and that's definitely on my bucket list. Oh, it's and, gorgeous, and the food's amazing. <laughs> oh, I bet. Well, what kind of food does uh, Vietnam have? Mm, really fresh, tasty. Um, they're not sort of overly um, spice-driven, so it tends to be all about fresh produce. Um, there's a lot of you know great seafood there. Um, and just all the mints and, you know, herbs that they put in, it's really tasty food. Can you tell us a little bit more about your experience with stakeholderships? Obviously, it influenced a lot of what you do. In an earlier conversation we had, it seemed like you had a lot of different knowledge that I didn't have. And I would love to hear a little bit about your philosophy behind what you do and how the stakeholders are involved. Yeah, well, and having spent quite a lot of time, you know, visiting eco villages and intentional communities, um, and want, knowing what I wanted to achieve with Casaba, it just did not feel right at all for this to be a typical, you know, business model where you know everyone's staff and there's a division between staff and guests, and you're either paying or you're 
you know, being paid, you know, it, it's all very transactional and that didn't feel right. So right from the start, I wanted to do this in a different way. Um, so to that end, I, I wrote, I read a book called Raising Capital on Your Own Terms by Jenny Casson. And I contracted her as my attorney in around February last year. So just as we're going into lockdown, <laughs> I signed up with Jenny. And it's a really interesting um, service that she's offering because what she's suggesting is rather than go out and try and raise money from the 1%, um, which is the sort of angel VC model and it's very male-oriented, obviously, and a very um, 100x return and unicorn-driven and all this sort of thing. So um, I knew I didn't want to go down that pathway. So um, what Jenny really has helped me do is understand how to raise money from the community of, of who's going to use it, so the stakeholders as um, the customers. And then because we're looking at land projects, um, it just felt right to call them stewards. So um, we have a, a tier of steward investors and those stewards um, invest 25000 and for that, it's actually preferred equity. So really trying to be part of the movement of educating people that how you spend your money is really also a representation of your own values and what you're doing out in the world. So um, by investing in a main street, you know, air quotes, main street business. So in other words, a business that you would use um, all the time and money um, is still circulated within that community. So rather than invest in these sort of, um, you know, multinationals, corporations, which obviously, you know, take money um, up into the extractive sort of uh, 1%, you can actually raise from the very community who are going to be using the product. Um, so, so I've been looking at that as well as that, you know, obviously um, you, 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 you heard me mention the B Corporation. So I think that's becoming a, a gold standard for recognising that this is a business who is doing um, work in the, um, per, you know, has a purpose, is fulfilling, you know, proper wages, is doing a green, um, you know, their processes are green, et cetera. So there's some sort of accountability for how the business is operating, which is a good signal for people that this is a values-aligned and mission-driven business. And then after that, I've, I've uh, one of my advisors mentioned the Perpetual Purpose Trust format, which is very interesting to me. Um, that is um, basically hand sells the company to a trust and that trust has its purpose. So in the case for Casaba, it would be living harmoniously with the planet. That would be our purpose. And then um, the, the trustees at the top are voted in from all the stakeholders to decide, you know, how the business shall be offer, operated. So it's a stopgap um, to prevent the instance of a successful business um, suddenly being in the hands of um, investors who are, are kind of wanting to pad their pockets more than fulfil the intentional mission of the of the um, business. So we'd be looking to do that. It does cost about thirty to 40000 so we're a little bit early stage for that. But what um, we're currently working on right now is actually setting up an L3C, it's called. Um, have you heard of that? I have not. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah. So basically, it looks and feels like an LLC, um, limited liability company. It's certainly um, similar in terms of protections, etc. Um, but it it ties in a mission into what it's doing, 
and pretty much um, is is fantastic as a well. It's basically a multi-stakeholder cooperative. So when you're drawing up your constitution and your operating agreement, you're recognising different investment um, or stakeholders, like uh, that might be the staff, it might be the early investors, it might be the steward investors, and each of them have um, certain rights and responsibilities that come along with that asset class. Um, and this is, this is, in fact, a fantastic way to... Um, make sure that you know it's got the feel of being a worker-owned cooperative because um, by intention that's what it's doing. So yeah, I'm just embarking on that journey with some help from a wonderful person called Forrest Lindhurst, who is um, part of planetarycare.org. Um, so I'm just being guided in that process. But again, it feels really right because this first location that we're setting up. Oh, so just to backtrack a little bit, what I'm doing with the Public Benefit Corporation is that's a holding company, which is basically the the Casaba brand and the booking system and the membership and and what we're doing with our sort of expertise that can be uh, lent and supported to each of the different villages. And then the villages themselves will have their own um, legal entity that that basically manages the day-to-day operations. Um, so it's the uh, first location we're setting up near Mendocino or in Mendocino near Willets. That will be the L3C. That's really cool. And I really appreciate all of the background you gave. Have you kind of thought about how all of the people involved in the villages that you're building and the people that are traveling, the surrounding areas, how they all interact together and the stakeholder relationships that are built? between each other yeah well we're certainly recognizing that um we don't want just pure customers that we're really inviting this stewardship so that's an immediate um kind of stakeholder um segment but then beyond that we're we're already talking about how we can be contributing to the wider community and i think what would be interesting is how we sort of uh, actualize that a little bit or may formalize it um, in the process of, of what we're setting up with the L3C, whether we can kind of, you know, give nature a, a voting right or, you know, give the Indigenous folks from the um, area a voting right, you know, how we include broader stakeholders um, rather than just, you know, staff and investors, et cetera, of, of the entity. So um, in that's upper explanation exploration but it's it's definitely one of our priorities is to make sure that we are very circular in the way that we're sharing the benefits of what we're creating and you said that you've already given indigenous populations and nature you've already given them voting rights or you're in the process of writing in wording like that yeah, in the process where we we aren't fully set, we, you know, we're just getting things set up at this first location and we're, we're just forming the L3C. So it is very early days, but through our conversations with the landowner and the core um, founding stewards who are going to be living on the land there, that is very much our intention. So um, we'll be looking at ways to make that, you know, more than just a, a a, a spoken <laughs> a spoken um, interest but but actually cementing it down in some sort of um, process and protocol that we're following 
you're making the secondary stakeholders or the people that would normally be your secondary stakeholders, like indigenous peoples and nature, you're bringing them in as if they're your primary stakeholders, as if they have a monetary value to gain or lose, which they do, but a lot of corporations don't see it that way. That's really interesting and yeah. really inspiring. We're hoping to heal the past, basically. <laughs> Are there any other primary or secondary stakeholders that you like to bring up and um, talk about like the interesting relationships that they have with your uh, with cassava? Well, I think the the most notable is this steward investment level. So, you know, most companies will typically go out and raise from their investors, you know, as angels or, you know, if they're moving further along, they're getting VCs, et cetera. But what we're saying is, okay, in each property, if we're getting 30 or 40 people to invest $25,000, and that's a place where they're basically calling their, their home ground, um, we don't have to be raising money from the kind of investors who are tapping their feet saying, what do you, you know, I want more money, <laughs> right? You're actually getting the, you're raising the capital from the very people who are actually gaining much more intangible benefits. So the experience of, you know, the binding with the group, the experience of growing the food there and being able to harvest those lemons five years later as the tree has grown big and fruitful. I think these are the sort of things that are, are much more important to, to these in investors. I mean, obviously, we want there to be a fi financial return so that's more attractive than putting it into, you know, Apple stocks or something. But, you know, we we think it's really important to give people that stakeholdership to say, you can have a piece of this experience, you know, you can really be part of of this because doing it the other way as my own experience was is extremely hard so <laughs> so this allows people to kind of um enjoy the 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 benefits of of having that special place they can be with their friends and family um without all the sort of pain and challenges that goes with it i completely agree and that makes a lot of sense you know i've been uh, getting to a point where i'm thinking about buying property so i can travel around a little bit more and um, your way sounds a lot more sustainable and uh, it's, it's really great to see these new ideas come into play and that I know that you're pursuing uh, like the benefit corporation and all that. It's really exciting. I, I think, I think um, what we'd really love to see, because there is a way, there's a movement of people wanting to go back to the land. So um, it's going to be really interesting to see the different models that pop up. But um, I've been particularly interested in the sort of regenerative tourism models where, you know, it's it's changing that perception that what we're going to go and experience is is just there for us and, and at, at our beck and call instead of actually saying, wow, we have a reciprocal relation, that gift of the beautiful view and, and all that, it, you know, it needs our help now. So how can we actually engage in a much more reciprocal relationship? Absolutely. And I think, I always think whenever people talk about the regenerative um, tourism about uh, Zion National Park, they had this huge display about these um, uh, old timey uh, park rangers who literally built the trails to make sure people don't walk all over the different things. And it's crazy that they did this over a hundred years ago with no power tools. And they built this beautiful walk that is still used to this day. 
I, I hope that that kind of touched on your point, but do correct me if that is a completely different concept. No, because they, they put the love into the, the space like that. So, yeah, all the people that are, are friends of Parks or the Sierra Club, they're, they're all you know, switched on to that kind of thing. Um, I just think most of the clamping things may, might not be as, <laughs> as oriented to that. But, you know, that, I think that will change because people are going to be looking for it. Absolutely. And Karen, I like to ask this question about all my guests because it's always so interesting. Everyone's had some experience with it. There's the fallacy in business. It's called the separation fallacy. And the idea is that business can't, uh, good business decisions can't possibly make for good ethical decisions and vice versa, good ethical decisions can't possibly make for successful business decisions. Now, have you experienced this in your work up until now? Um, and if so, can you tell us a little bit more about that? Well, I mean, it's it's actually extremely current for me right now because I've been making the decision about whether to make an LLC or an L3C. And what came up for me was when you, when you Google LC3, um, no, sorry, L3C, you're going to see it's a low-profit company like it's it's like it says it's a you know it's a vehicle for making very low income low or no profit let me have a look it's a grand uh, bridge grant low profit that's right low profit limited liability company i guess that's why it's the, the l3 low profit limited liability now that doesn't sound like a good business does it <laughs> So, so I was faced with that myself. Do I go with this other entity because it's more, you know, well known as a vehicle, or do I go with this L3C as a way to grow and understand how to bake into it a purpose, how to bake into it worker ownership and different, you know, tiers of investment, and you know, and go down this path. Right, and I'm 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 saying yes, you know, it's a full body yes, but the you know, <laughs> a couple of days ago it was like, well, you know, what should I do? You know, not to say that an LLC is not ethical, but you know, every choice that you're making as you're designing and building your business will impact how it acts out in the world, and I think that the L3C is a great um, way to say no, we're we're already figuring out how to make this really social enterprise oriented and that will attract the kind of people that we ultimately want to be spending our time with on uh, Spaceship Earth. <laughs> I love that. That's a very great way to put it in. I mean, the decision is not easy. No, and, and just to add to that, I mean, you know, as I'm out fundraising, it's it gets a little depressing or you know sort of um it's a bit of a deterrent when you're talking with people and you know that they're expecting you to say all the terminology that's going to be leading their angel investment up to be 100x return so it is kind of difficult you know because although on the one hand people are like we you know we really want a sustainable world we want to change things for the better we want more social justice but they're at that very moment when they're they're you know given the choice to invest in something that is about you know steady sustainable growth, uh, paying dividends each year rather than a you're going to sell it for you know a hundred x what you put in 
you know which way people go? Well, <laughs> they typically go for the they'll go for the hundred x. Um, so you know, it is it, it takes a lot of courage actually to just stick with your principles and say we're going to do it another way. Yeah, I can imagine, and I really hope that that's something that is going to be shifting in our society because I mean, I don't know. It, it's really um, I'm hopeful that it will change. How about that? <laughs> yeah, I am too. <laughs> and, and and you know, Karen, and ultimately looking at something like um, uh, Mondragon in Spain, you know, the the stats are out. That is a much more resilient way to um, to be in business is to be with a group that are you know looking after looking after everything. So that's also a positive. You're absolutely right. And Karen, I really want to thank you for being a guest today. You gave given us some great information. Um, would you like to give us any final thoughts before we sign off today? Um, I think um, worth looking at the way blockchain and those sort of um, currencies are going to help us with this. There's the um, seeds regenerative currency. We're really looking at that as a way to have more sort of um, uh, transparent accounting and you know, easier ways to track transact between each other. So I think that there's some really exciting things um, coming on the horizon. So, you know, let's be open and keep moving towards them and experiment and learn from them and keep positive as we're doing it. Beautifully put. And Karen, thank you so much again. I encourage all of my listeners to go check out uh, what they're doing. Um, With that being said, I hope all of you have a great rest of your day and I'll uh, see you in the next episode.